Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this week is a very exciting week for you, Caroline, <laughs> because this is, uh, I don't know, this is just something that you're talking about all the time anyway. I guess. I mean, our listeners know I have a passion for what I would call the hidden side of history. The dark side of history. Mm-hmm. Much like our Renaissance Poisons episode, or even with the death of Princess Diana, this week I'll be digging into the dark side of royalty. With any particular rulers, Carrie? Well, there's no one better to skim the surface of the dark side than King Henry VIII. I'm Henry VIII, I am, I am, Henry VIII, I am. That guy? The guy that those British invasion artists sung about? I, I mean, don't know what band that is. Herman's Hermits? Probably. Um, I, I guess. Maybe. I got married to the woman next door. She's been married seven times before, and everyone was an Henry. Is this the guy? I don't know. <laughs> We know, uh, we know Henry as kind of this portly guy with a bit of a beard, sort of balding, usually holding a turkey leg, even though there's no art with him actually doing that. Did you just call him portly? He was portly. He was bigger than portly. He was well, a really big guy. At one point he was portly and then he got bigger. Now, our listeners have already seen the title of this episode, and it might seem dramatic to some to call this episode Henry VIII Serial Killer. Ooh, should we post it as Henry VIII's portrait of a serial killer? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but to me, he more than anyone else on the English throne embodies what a serial killer is to us in the modern era. Cold, calculating, only out for themselves, and most importantly, willing to dispose of anyone who gets in the way of what they want. Was he a psychopath? I mean, did he kill for pleasure? There are psychopathic tendencies. I don't know if it was pleasure, but it was for his pleasure, if that makes sense. At his pleasure, if you didn't please yes. him. Goodbye. Yeah. We know that the most dangerous men in history, in terms of like sheer numbers, are not the Ted Bundys and the Jeffrey Dahmers, but rather the Adolf Hitlers and the Josef Stalins, the men with the means to dispose of millions of lives for their own goals. Mao Zedong. Mm-hmm. But with Henry... Genghis Khan. Yes. <laughs> Others. Alexander the Great. Sure. With Henry VIII, these goals were so uniquely personal to him, and not necessarily always political, that he became something closer, in my eyes anyway, to a Bundy or a Dahmer, even though he never killed anyone with his own two hands, as far as I know. Maybe in battle. I don't know. No murders? Not... By his hands, but considering he never did much else with his own two hands, <laughs> including uh, shitting, which he had a groom of the stool that would wipe his butt for him. That wow. is true. Is that the guy's whole job? Yes, but it was a very, um, a very high prestige job because you're the one who's with the king in his most private moments. Sure, you only give that to a trusted friend, not someone Absolutely. who's going to poison your butt. Poison your butt. Go to Renaissance Poisons uh, episode, I don't even know, 29 or something. Lots of butt poison. Uh, there were thoughts of butt poison, <laughs> for sure. So, yeah, he he even <laughs> he didn't even wipe his own ass. So, he's not going to do the dirty work of killing people himself. 
but this is as close as he was going to get. Now, our listeners also know I love to start with a little backstory, but I think it's definitely necessary here because it helps shed light on what would become Henry's murderous obsessions in the future. And I think our listeners already know, if longtime listeners will already know your obsession with uh, the British royalty and the crowned heads of Europe in general. Yeah, and it's not really a thing of like, I don't know, people get obsessed with it because it's so glamorous and exciting, but I'm really obsessed with the history of it and just the concept of a supreme ruler and how that still is in effect today. I mean, even though they're just figureheads. Yeah, in this house, it's pretty clear that you're fascinated with the concept of a supreme ruler. (laughs) Oh, because of (laughs) Poe? Our little dictator? (laughs) Yeah, our little Charlie Chaplin, yeah. I think it's important because Henry's obsessions, um, which would be his belief that he was truly put on the throne due to God's will, and his all-consuming fixation on his legacy, which to him came in the shape of a son to take the throne after his death, those are the things that inform what he does later. But all English kings, I mean, all monarchists believe that they're put on the throne by God himself, right? They do, but in the case of Henry, he took it to another level, like (laughs) politically, legally, religiously. Now, just a a little disclaimer. uh, Keep in mind, almost everyone in this story is named Henry, Mary, Catherine, or Thomas. I thought you were going to say almost everyone in this story is dead. I was like, yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. Um, Especially like Henry and Thomas. Thomas is particularly egregious. I'm going to try to delineate who all these Thomases are. Just, Sean, try to act like the listener and let me know when I'm not doing that well enough. I will do my best. Okay. So we'll start with a different Henry. Henry VII. This is Henry VIII's father, you can assume. Henry VII came to the throne not through birth, but through a forcible seizure of the crown, which made him different than a lot of different kings. Whoops. Yeah. This is going to get a little dense, but bear with me. Um, by 1485, Richard III was the king of England. Now, you may know Tricky Dick version 1.0 from the Shakespeare play that bears his name. Oh, I was going to say, isn't he uh, the guy who comes back at the end of uh, Robin Hood? Is that him? Isn't that the king they're all waiting for? And well, I thought Robin Hood had to do with, like, Richard Lionheart. Yeah. That's so, earlier. Oh, okay. That's a couple centuries earlier, maybe? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Robin Hood would be before Richard the III wasn't very much a... Lionheart. Um, (laughs) In the Shakespeare play, he's portrayed as a scheming, villainous hunchback. In real life, he wasn't much more of a prize than that. Uh, Was he a hunchback? He had problems. (laughs) Listen, he was inbred. Inbred. So, I mean, they all were. Um, He almost certainly had his young nephews murdered in the Tower of London to assure his ascent to the throne. Oh, people have been doing that since ancient Rome, though. Yeah. You're going to you're going to not kill a couple of nephews. You're supposed to not do it obviously. <laughs> uh, and you could look into this with the story of the princes in the tower um or read my dad Paul Ferrante's upcoming book that takes place in the Tower of London. The Terror in the Tower. Aptly named. All this to say Richard III was kind of an asshole <laughs> and he really wasn't beloved by both the people or his court. No one was really in his corner. And this is Hank's dad. No, this is Richard. This is who is king at this point. King of England. 
Oh, before Henry VII took over. Yes. I see. So Richard III had already squashed one rebellion by the time he faced Henry Tudor, that's Henry VII, in the Battle of Bosworth Field. Now, Henry Tudor was promoted as an alternative to the House of York and eventually the much-hated Richard III practically from birth. So Richard was of the House of York, and Henry Tudor, in this case, was from the House of Lancaster, or Lancaster, however you want to say it. And the Wars of the Roses that they fought are what Game of Thrones is very loosely based on? Yes, Um so again, like Game of Thrones is based on this. Like it's it's pretty epic. It's awesome. It's interesting and it's true. The Wars of the Roses, these were English civil wars that kind of spanned mid to late 15th century. And the two rival houses, the Yorks and the Lancasters, were fighting to be the rightful heirs of the throne. Now York was currently on the throne, Richard, and the House of Lancaster also felt like they were rightful heirs because both were related to the original royal house of Plantagenet. Mm. And that's descended directly from Henry II. So they're both related because everyone's intermarrying. It's all gross. Everyone in Europe is real. Every royal in Europe is related. Yes. Forever. Pretty much. Um, they each had their reasons for feeling like they should be the ones on the throne. And obviously, if you're not the one on the throne, you're going to want to be the one on the throne. The male lines were pretty much extinguished in the wars. So Henry Tudor, and this is the seventh again, he's the son of Lancastrian descendant Margaret Beaufort and Edmund Tudor, who was half-brother of Henry VI of England. So he's got he's got royal blood on both sides. He does, yes. Henry Tudor was like kind of elevated as the last great hope to get a strong Lancastrian king to the throne that would be accepted because he had this royal blood. That was important that he had to be accepted by nobles and the people. He won the support of France, Scotland, and Wales, who all had their reasons for hating Richard III and the House of York. And he was able to make his way all the way to the Battle of Bosworth Field, which would decide the final winner of the war. Why did the French have a, have anything to say about this? The French and the English have always been bitter, bitter enemies yep. because the English feel like they should be on the French throne too. And the French are like, no. And so that's kind of a thing. <laughs> so the French were like, yeah, we hate Richard. Let's help you out. Whatever their motivations were, they were on his side. It's also why the French helped us out in the American Revolution to stick it to the English. Right, yeah. French um, tr- troll bots on Twitter uh, <laughs> affecting the, uh, the the election mm-hmm. in the War of the Roses. Richard III was killed in the fight, and he was the last king to die in battle. And Henry VII was immediately made King Henry VII of England. He was also the last king to win his crown in battle, like himself, I assume, by killing the previous, the previous guy. Yeah. So from there, it was all about ensuring the legacy of the House of Lancaster. So they basically never had to deal with this shit again. It's a funny thing about monarchy. The The whole thing rests on the principle that the, the God has said the king mm-hmm. should be the king. So then when someone else takes your throne by force, though, well, God wouldn't have let that happen. Exactly. If... <laughs> There's, Trust me, we're going to find many ways to reason things out in terms of what God wants in this story. Now, Henry VII was pretty savvy, so he married Elizabeth of York. She was the heir to the House of York, and she was sister to the murdered princes in the tower. She couldn't 
take the crown uh, like Richard did, who was her uncle, but she had cachet, so to speak. It sounds like she had a lot to be bitter about as well. Exactly. So this would symbolically bring the houses together and establish one dynasty, the Tudors. Henry and Elizabeth had five children, the firstborn prince and heir, Arthur, Prince of Wales, Margaret, Queen of Scots, Henry VIII, basically the spare, Elizabeth Tudor, Mary, eventual Queen of France, and Edmund, the Duke of Somerset. Hmm. Because of all the aforementioned inbreeding, the <laughs> supposed heir, Arthur, was never a well child and was pretty sickly all his life. Second son waiting in the wings. Mm. Despite this, around the ages of 14 to 16-ish, he was married by proxy and then in person to 15-year-old Catherine of Aragon. And she was the princess of the region we now know as Spain-ish, and daughter of the famous King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. Of Spain? Uh, Aragon and Castile, which is basically Spain. Now, this was meant to be a match made to consolidate the powers and create like a firm Anglo-Spanish alliance against France, because the Spanish were also not into France. But that was complicated by Arthur dying of illness just five months or so after meeting Catherine in person for their official wedding ceremony in November 1501. So he's 14, 16 when he dies? 16-ish, yeah. And Henry's a couple years younger? He was 10. Here's a question. When you've got the spare, because I know you need a spare heir because mm -hmm. people die a lot in, in mm -hmm. whether it's wars or infections or yeah, whatever. They always call it the heir and the spare, and these are usually almost definitely two boys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly in England at this time. Mm -hmm. So are you teaching the spare how to be a ruler at all? Not as much as the heir. He's kind of, he's getting a great education. He's getting a lot of benefits, but he's not getting that same education. He's getting a great education for like 1500. I mean, he got the best that he could, you know, in terms of religion, law, things like that. These are the four humors. History. These are the kinds of leeches you should bleed people with. <laughs> but he's not getting the same kind of training Arthur did just in terms of necessity, I guess. But he would have to. So Catherine was left a widow but she was still around, which will be important in a moment. And the 10-year-old Henry was elevated to the heir to the throne and the Prince of Wales. Now, how old and or sickly was Henry's dad at this point? Um, he was getting fairly old. Henry VII died seven years later. So Henry VIII became King of England at the ripe old age of 17. Oh, God, who wouldn't want a 17-year-old boy? Ugh. The, the period. <laughs> no. <laughs> the peak of wisdom and I would not humility. let a 17-year-old boy decide what I was having for dinner tonight. Restraint. Well, I would let a 17-year-old boy decide what I was having for dinner because it would be pizza. Yeah, because you were a 17-year-old boy, you friggin' mess. <laughs> okay. So here's where the situation with marriage gets really complicated and really sets things up for Henry's madness to come. Catherine had not been sent back to Spain after the death of her husband in 1502 for a couple reasons, but primarily because Henry VII didn't want to pay back the hefty dowry he'd scored from the Spanish royals by betrothing his son to her. Sure. Because he spent that money, sure. he's gone. Yeah. 
So he kept the dowry and kept her around. And that's, I think, kind of one of the um, stipulations that, you know, you're still keeping her in court and feeding her, clothing her, whatever. But at this point, there's no expectation that they're going to marry her to someone else. Just like, yeah, hold on to her. Not at this point. Henry VII pretty much treated her like shit. So were they like, if you give us our daughter back, we also need the money back? That's kind of just how it went. Catherine had been desperate to go home, but was completely stuck. She was a widow to a dead child. And not only that, but she swore, along with her ladies-in-waiting, that the marriage to Arthur had never been consummated. So, okay. (laughs) Consummation was a big thing in Catholic marriage. In... Royal marriages, just always, right? Sure, yeah. But especially Catholic, because marriages were legitimately not valid until they were consummated. So even though she'd had the legal ceremony, that apparently meant nothing in the eyes of God because she'd never done the deed with him. Well, she claimed that this 14 and 15-year-old boy and girl never... Well, okay. There was a bit of uncertainty around this. Catherine was an honest and very pious girl, She swore to God that she would never lie, and she was very much about God. So that would be a a very mortal sin to her, to basically lie in the face of God. But in your position, if you're her, this could be a life or death lie. Yes. You kind of need to be... She wouldn't be dead, but... I don't know. It seems dangerous. You're in a foreign country. It's not great, but, you know... If she had consummated the marriage with Arthur, then I think the worst she could have hoped for was being sent home at some point. They weren't going to kill her because she had done her job. She had done what a wife should do. Yeah, sure. Technically in this rule system. Unless England goes to war with Spain, which happens. Right. Arthur, after their first night together, had bragged to his bros that he'd Spent the night in Spain. I hate men. He's a 14-year-old boy. 16, 17. Oh. Even worse. This is right on. (laughs) This is exactly, uh, yeah, that's a 16-year-old boy. Uh, But Catherine basically said that he was kind of covering for himself and lying. Now, I have to give her credit. It's not out of the realm of possibility because Arthur wasn't exactly a hale and hearty dude. So maybe he hadn't been up to it. I know he was sickly. I know he died less than a year later, in fact, but he was 17 years old. It would have to be a pretty specific illness to... uh... He wasn't doing well, Sean. They both got sick soon after their wedding, so it had never really been a good time. But accepting the non-consummation made Catherine both still eligible politically for a marriage and, more importantly, still eligible in the eyes of God. Right. So the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you know this, Sean, but the Bible is a little confusing about certain things. Um, I would imagine. Weird, huh? I would imagine actually before King James, it was probably even more confusing because there's probably different versions floating around that everybody's using. In Leviticus 20.21, the Bible states, If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. They will be childless. However, in Deuteronomy 25.5, 
The Bible states, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. So. Fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. That seems to. It means. It means. It means give her a son. Yeah. Really? And carry on the family name. That's the duty of a brother-in-law? Apparently. The the Bible was real. It had a lot of stuff in it. I'm glad I don't have any brothers. (laughs) So the Bible both said you can't marry your brother's widow and you must marry your brother's widow. Right. Uh, Like Matt Damon in that movie about the fisherman. Sure. Isn't there one where Matt Damon has to marry his... Uh... I only oh, know Oh, no, it's Chris Deadwood. Hemsworth. I know Deadwood. He has to do... Yeah, well, Seth Bullock. But I think that's more... I don't think it's like... I don't think he was obligated to do it, but he probably felt that way. Yeah, but it was a pretty common thing in like yeah. the 1800s, for sure. So needless to say, it was a gray area. But because Arthur and Catherine's marriage was supposedly unconsummated, it wasn't valid... And they were kind of able to get around this with the intention of marrying Catherine to the five years younger Henry VIII and keeping that Spanish-English alliance secure. Right. They secured a papal dispensation from the Pope for the possibility of affinity. The guy himself. Yeah. Now, affinity is defined as an impediment to marriage of a couple due to the relationship which either party has as a result of a kinship relationship created by another marriage or as a result of extramarital intercourse so basically affinity is you can't bang your brother's wife right of course if they banged or extramarital sex Mm -hmm. so they got around this because Catherine was like well we never banged right sure and and the Pope at this time was definitely like an uncorruptible, unbribable figure, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. The famously uh, um, upstanding 15th century Catholic, mm-hmm. Catholic Church. Catherine again had to testify to the fact that the marriage had never been consummated and the dispensation was granted. They basically tried to cover all their bases, mostly in the eyes of the church. But after this, a few things happened. Queen Isabella died, which affected Catherine's value because she wasn't the... was the rightful queen of half the kingdom. It wasn't that she had married into it. Right. Okay. And King Ferdinand procrastinated so much about paying the rest of Catherine's dowry to England that it became doubtful the marriage would ever take place. Oh, they never finished paying the dowry? No. No, they should have just sent her back when the kid died. I know. Would have been better for Catherine, <laughs> by the way. I've heard conflicting things about Henry VIII's feelings about Catherine at this point, but because I'm a bit of a romantic, I'll go with the perspective that he was very fond of her because he basically grew up with her. So when Henry VII died in 1509 and Henry became king, he made it happen and soon declared that he would be marrying Catherine. It basically saved her from this weird limbo, sad life. And he did marry her on June 11, 1509. He was 17, and Catherine was 23. And Henry was a consummator. Oh, he consummated, baby. They had their coronation in Westminster Abbey later that month. It was all very nice. So he didn't get crowned king till he had a wife? I think the, the, the typical thing, yeah, the typical thing was that you would do that with your wife. So it was nice, but 
Sir Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley, two of Henry VIII's father's most unpopular ministers, were not having a good time. Why? <laughs> they were charged with high treason and executed in 1510. Oh, this is... And pretty much because people didn't like them. Okay. So this has nothing to do with the marriages. <laughs> no. But this established a trend that we'll see a lot in the rest of Henry VIII's life. Politically and emotionally motivated executions of anyone seen to be standing in his way. And we don't know... Do we know what got them out of the king's good graces? No, I assume it's because he didn't like them and wanted a clean slate and was kind of like, I'm the king now. Yeah, you're making this sound like he like got on the throne and was immediately like, ah, those two guys. It was pretty soon after. Well, maybe it's like when you go to prison, you know, you got to kick someone's ass on the first day to show, you know, nobody th- fucks yeah, around with this guy. Exactly. Soon after getting married, Catherine got pregnant, but unfortunately gave birth to a stillborn girl in January 1510. Now, again, she's a little older than typical at this time. She's 23, but I chalk her issues with conceiving and things like that more to just the terrible rigors of royal and medieval life, renaissance-ish time. I don't think it was her aging 23-year-old womb. No, no, but... Um, people just weren't doing well back then. <laughs> Things were tough. People were sick all the time. And court life was pretty strenuous. Yeah. So she couldn't conceive any babies? No. Because a, a few months later, she was pregnant again. And on New Year's Day, 1511, son Henry was born. Oh. Everyone was thrilled. Oh, we're done. We've gotten there. Yeah son to secure the line. Catherine had done her duty providing that son. Life is awesome. All right. Henry's all set. Nothing bad will happen for the rest of this story. Until baby Henry died just seven weeks later. Shit. Then Catherine gave birth to two more stillborn sons in 1513 and 1515. They didn't try to pass either of those off as an heir? No, they they just didn't live. Uh, Baby Henry lived for seven weeks, so... The royal couple finally were able to raise a healthy child when Mary was born in 1516, which eased some tensions between them, because I suppose there was at least some sort of lineage being established. But tensions between them because obviously this is her fault? Yes. Oh, of course. Catherine would see that Mary would not be enough. Now, most of Henry's marriage... Wait, why not? You've got an heir now, right? You can just make her the... No. Oops. Her. Oops. Is the operative word. At this point, she could not inherit the throne in her own right. Of course. Most of Henry's marriage to Catherine has been described as unusually good. Unusually good? <laughs> Most that, of it. That is not a ringing endorsement. With him being a fairly kind husband and her being a doting and respectful wife. Oh, hold on. I assumed it meant unusually good for a Henry Eighth marriage. Did it mean unusually good for, for a, a royal a, marriage a at the time? king and queen, yeah. She had been raised all of her life to be doting and respectful, so that's really no surprise. But Henry absolutely messed around, and Catherine knew that, and pretty much ignored it, which was for the best for both of them. Was that just kind of SOP, though, if you were a king? Well, some wives were not, were more vocal about it than others, but Catherine just basically turned a blind eye and let him do his thing. Mm. Among the affairs he had 
was a mistress for three years, Elizabeth Blount, also known as Bessie Blount, who gave birth in June 1519 to Henry's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. Oi, she can do a... she can make boys! Well, that's the thing. This sort of proved Henry VIII was capable of having a living, healthy son. And Henry Fitzroy being born would become a bone of contention soon enough with Catherine. Fitzroy was officially recognized as his child and made Duke of Richmond in 1525. Oh, this is getting awkward. Yeah. Uh, And it was a logical step in his path to legitimization. It seems Henry was just kind of setting things up in case he didn't have a legit son with uh, Catherine. Because then he could go, you know what? This is a son after all. (laughs) Exactly. Perhaps Fitzroy could become king after his death if there was like no other possibilities. Um, A real Jon Snow. Yeah. Henry VIII was desperate still for a boy child, and ideally one that would be actually legitimate. Unfortunately for Catherine, her bad luck continued, or theirs, and she had a stillborn girl in 1518. I think that's unluckier for Catherine than it is for Henry, frankly. Yes. Henry, straying further and further from the marital bed, Mm -hmm. eventually had another affair, this time with Mary Boleyn, Catherine's lady-in-waiting. Mary Boleyn? Yeah, Boleyn. Hmm. Part of that sounds familiar. Familiar. Mary was the famous Anne's sister, and this would also become an issue later in the game. Of course. In 1525, Henry became obsessed with Anne Boleyn. Anne was likely born around 15 or 7 or a little earlier. Likely born with six fingers on one hand. (laughs) This made her somewhere around 18 or 20 or so when she first cast her spell on the king. Oh, we don't know exactly, huh? No. Anne had been raised in the Austrian and then the French court, which was common for daughters of nobles. You'd send them away to be in different courts, get their education. She had so impressed Margaret of Austria when she was only around 12 that she was invited to have a place in her household, after which she attended Henry VIII's sister Mary in France for several years. And um, this childhood gave her access to studies in French, art, fashion, literature, music, philosophy. It was an education that many noble girls even would have dreamed of having. Wow. So she was probably a good conversationalist, too. Well, that's the thing. This really apparently made her exceptionally striking in those arenas, the conversation, flirtation. It was said she was able to completely entrance men who probably hadn't had much experience with educated women before. Right. (laughs) And it scared and titillated them. Well, it certainly titillated them. But you couldn't go too far, you know? Well, as long as she's not, like, voting. (laughs) God forbid. It was this aspect of Anne that captured Henry's attention a few years after she came back to the English court to serve as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine. So Henry would basically pick all of his mistresses from his wife's household, which is messed up. Would he have power over like who they hired for her ladies-in-waiting? Like was he, Sometimes. Was he drafting Sometimes. a team? Or it would be something like, oh, my buddy, the Duke of bumblefuck um has a daughter can you you know she's hot yes well that helps henry had already had a taste of the bolin brand and liked what Anne was cooking <laughs> Jesus. so eventually he just became obsessed with her 
and for her part, skillfully kept him on the hook in one major way more than any other. She refused to sleep with him. And you don't just, like, get executed if you refuse to sleep with Henry? not at this point. Unlike her sister and many other ladies of the court, she just didn't give in to the king's physical whims. And this just intensified his obsession because, of course, everyone wants what they can't have. Right. And describe Henry's... Describe Henry at this point. I mean, is he is he a catch other than being the king? He's still pretty good. We'll get into when he makes his turn. But to, but, but to, he's not fat guy with turkey leg at this point. He's still in his thirty, like early thirties, young. Was he like interested in ruling? He was. He loved being king. He was very active physically. Um, he was enjoying himself except for the the one issue of not having a son oh there's a difference between i didn't mean does did he like being king was he interested in like ruling yeah he was making choices (laughs) choices it's likely henry had begun to think of annulling his marriage to catherine somehow years before he actually met anne because his obsession with a legitimate male heir to the tudor crown had already become all-consuming by this point but, like, they've had a girl, so she could have a boy. It's not like her womb is just Well, they, she had a girl, and then she's had, like, stillborns. No, and... I under, yeah, I understand. She's not good at making babies. I get that. Well. Anne told Henry that she would only yield to him in the bedchamber as his acknowledged queen. So that helped speed up his desperation. <laughs> He's like, oh, my God, I gotta get it in there. At this point, it doesn't help that Catherine's around 40 years old already and certainly years out of her childbearing prime in these days. Oh, yeah. Now she's not giving him an heir anymore. Yeah. It wasn't likely for her to ever conceive again. So the male heir was looking pretty unlikely coming from her. Anne, however, was young, hot and ready to party. Six fingers. You're really obsessed with that. It's a very persistent rumor. (laughs) Now, this was complicated. Henry was a devout Catholic and had received that papal dispensation from Pope Julius II to marry Catherine. For the current Pope, Clement VII, to annul his marriage to Catherine, Clement would have to directly admit that the previous Pope had made a boo-boo. And Wait, but no, but the, but the previous Pope was also the mouth of God, so that would mean... Exactly, he didn't want to do that. Uh-oh. This didn't deter Henry, though, and his quest for an official papal annulment became known as the King's Great Matter. There's a Wikipedia page for this. It is the official title for him trying to get an annulment from his wife. Yeah, uh, previous to this, that term was all only used when Henry would walk around all the ladies of the court and talk about the King's Great Matter. Ugh. Now, annulment is basically the only way the church grants anything like a divorce, Otherwise, bucko, you're married for life. Annulment is their one get-out-of-jail-free card. And it depends on the marriage in question being unconsummated or somehow invalid. The reason Henry was able to marry Catherine was because her marriage to Arthur was, by her testimony, unconsummated. Right, so it could be annulled because the marriage had never happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Henry was basically using the same logic, but flipped around to try and get an annulment from Catherine. He said that since she was married to his brother, and he might have been hinting that she was lying about the consummation, 
Um, God was angry at their union, and the proof was in all the stillbirths of their children and her inability to bear a healthy son. So what, Pope? Are you going to argue with God? Mm-hmm. Leviticus had said the couple will be childless if a man marries his brother's wife. And yeah, 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 yeah. There was Mary, but like she didn't really count because she like wasn't a dude. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. No, no full children. Yeah, it, it was just another case of like, close enough. The one know? we got is defective. It's missing a penis. <laughs> exactly. Henry felt that their inability to conceive and birth a healthy boy was proof that God had cursed the marriage and that that was enough to grant him an annulment. And he was like, I want it. So why can't we do it, daddy? I want an annulment and I want it now. <laughs> it's Veruca Salt. Mm hmm. Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, the king's right-hand man, yes-man, and chief ambassador to the Pope, was doing his darndest to get the annulment from Clement, but it was starting to look near impossible. There was also the small problem of Catherine's nephew being Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and Charles was starting to get pissed off by this whole affair on his aunt's behalf. This, so this is like Charlemagne's like great-great-great-grandson? I don't even know where it goes, but he's related to Catherine, and he's very powerful. Yeah, sure. He's got the, he's got, well, I mean, they're lying when they say it's the Roman Empire, yeah. but sure. Wolsey was doing everything he could for the king, including convening an ecclesiastical court in England with a representative of the Pope presiding and Henry and Catherine themselves in attendance. Catherine had to, once again, and in humiliation, testify that her marriage to Arthur had been unconsummated and that she'd entered into her marriage with Henry in full accordance with God's law. You calling the king a liar? <laughs> Due in part to his fear of angering Emperor Charles, the Pope just kept putting off the decision and refusing to grant the annulment. He was push kicking it down the line, basically. Oh, I forgot about the annulment thing. Ah. I'll get back to you next week about it. I'm sorry. I've got so much potpourri to do. <laughs> potpourri. A potpourri of potpourri. Wolsey was dismissed from public office in 1529 due to his failure to, I don't know, rewrite the Bible, I guess. <laughs> um, and he began a secret plot to have Anne forced into exile, communicating with the Pope to that effect. But when this was discovered, Henry freaked the hell out. Wolsey was arrested under the charge of Praemunire, which was an absurd law that the king had recently cooked up for basically this very issue. Henry or his dad? Uh, Henry VIII. Um, Praemunire prohibited the assertion of maintenance of papal jurisdiction or any other foreign jurisdiction against the supremacy of the English monarch, a.k.a. Do it because I said so, not because the other Pope king said so. doesn't have authority over me. This was one of Henry's first big steps toward making himself be seen as an all-powerful, godlike entity in England. One more godlike than, well, God. Uh, We're not listening to God anymore. Yeah. Had Wolsey not been terminally ill and died while still in custody in 1530, he may have become serial killer Henry VIII's first official victim. But we'll get to those after the break. <gasps> One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life 
the level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. Welcome back. When last we left you, I was a little perturbed by the lack of blood so far <laughs> in our Henry VIII portrait of a serial killer. I'm going with portrait of a serial killer, <laughs> Carolyn. Henry VIII portrait of a serial killer episode. But I imagine it's going to start raining down pretty soon. Sure is. In 1531, Catherine was officially banished from court, and her rooms were given to Anne Boleyn. Ouch. I know. This must have been absolutely brutal for Catherine. Has the marriage been... So the Pope denied the annulment. He just has Has neglected to give it. (laughs) But so they are still married, and Henry's just like, all right, uh, you can take your leave. Mm Mm-hmm. Catherine felt like she was being cut off by her rightful husband for something she hadn't done for another woman. Who works for her. Yeah. And after years of quietly standing by Henry's side as he boinked around the royal court, like she said, she's basically like, you can bang her. Like, just I'm your wife, though. I'm still the queen. Just let me be the queen. I'm 40. It's the 1500s. I'm going to die in like two years. It really must have been torture for her. Um she wrote that year in a letter to her nephew, Emperor Chuck. My tribulations are so great, my life so disturbed by the plans daily invented to further the king's wicked intention, the surprises which the king gives me with certain persons of his council are so mortal, and my treatment is what God knows that is enough to shorten ten lives, much more mine. Well, not yet it's not. Well, maybe... Henry's countless cruelty did shorten her life because, spoiler alert, she died only five years later at age 50. And there it is. Yeah. In September 1531, Anne was created Marquisate of Pembroke, 
which was originally a male title, and she very officially became a rich and important woman in her own right. She now ranked above all the other peeresses, and her family profited as well. Her father was created the Earl of Wiltshire, a step up from his original title of Viscount. Her cousin became the Earl of Ormond, and her brother adopted her father's original Viscount Rochefort title. So everyone's dripping titles right now. Are you only being created a lord? I've heard that term a lot recently. Are you only created a lord if it's a new title in fiefdom? Or uh, like if, if there already was an Earl of York and then he I killed him and they were like, you can be the Earl of York now. Yeah, it's a hereditary thing unless the king says so. Right, but so if there's already so a you guy. Could, you could create one for a new area of land right. or whatever. Or you can create someone as an Earl of whatever um, to replace the old family who was there who hadn't had any sons to carry on the line. Right, so there already was an Earl of York, but you're creating me as the Earl of York. I know uh, there's not actually an Earl of York. You know, Stop looking at uh, me. I don't know in this case. Okay. So everything's coming up Boleyn, and it seems likely that around this time Anne would have finally submitted to him and consummated their relationship, even though it was outside the bounds of marriage. She said, only as your queen... As your acknowledged queen, I think it was. Oh, so, yeah. Crafty language. She probably felt confident enough in her position at this time to do so. Uh, because even if the king tossed her aside, she'd still be a marquess. So she'd still have a title. She'd still be rich. Sure. So, and now you can cement your position by really turning Henry's head around. Sure. Uh, Henry, perhaps understandably, was getting very impatient. It had been years. So maybe she thought, to keep him on the hook, it was now time to go to bed with him. Now, this is all conjecture, but that seems to be the scholarly thought. At this point, Hank is pushing right on through and getting, trying to get this whole marriage thing locked in, like whatever it takes. Just books of paper going to Rome every yeah. day. Please! The Bolin family chaplain, Thomas Cranmer, was appointed to the position of Archbishop of Canterbury and became the biggest yes-man of them all. Through Cranmer, Henry had someone supposedly with God on his side telling him he was so right and so powerful and, oh my God, so attractive. At this point, it's the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. He's a Catholic Archbishop. Does Henry get to appoint the ones in the kingdom? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He does. Well, that's a... I don't know why the church let that happen. Well, he appoints them and then they have to approve. But basically, the situation was, the Pope was trying to keep Henry on his side without giving the annulment. So he's like, yeah, sure, have your archbishop, you whatever. Want. Yeah. This guy seems great. Yeah. Another yes man, Thomas Cromwell. Oh, shit. So we have Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell. Lots of Thomases. Okay. What in the white bread English naming conventions is this? Are there any other Cromwells? Maybe we can just call this guy Cromwell. Well, there's Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, I know, but he won't be alive for another hundred years? Well, we'll call Cranmer the Archbishop and Cromwell the Chief Minister. Okay. In 1532, the chief minister brought before Parliament a number of acts, including the supplication against the ordinaries and submission of the clergy, blah, 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 which recognized royal supremacy over the church. And this really finalized a break with Rome in favor of the king's ultimate supremacy in England. These were passed, and so the king was like, who do I have to fuck around here to get an annulment and marry Anne? 
Oh, just Dan? Oh, me. It's me now. Let's do it. And he did. A royal decree and a bippity boppity boo, and Henry and Anne were married in a secret ceremony on November 14th, 1532. Oh, that's interesting. So he didn't form the Church of England to get a divorce from his first wife. It kind of came out of that. Because of all of these acts of supremacy, he became the new pope. In England. But he hasn't started gone, he hasn't gone about making this his own church yet. He's working on it. <laughs> It's likely Anne was in the early days of pregnancy at this time, but whatever child she would have now would be legitimate, especially after a second wedding in accordance with the royal book was held in January 1533. And of course, everyone was so certain at this point that she was pregnant with a boy, so praise be to God. The archbishop declared Henry's marriage to Catherine null and void, and the marriage of Henry and Anne good and valid. So the Archbishop is basically doing everything in England that he was hoping the Pope would do. Right, yeah, just whatever Henry says. Catherine was formally stripped of her title as Queen, and Anne was crowned Queen Consort on June 1st, 1533. Anne gave birth on September 7th, 1533, but not to a boy. This child was named Elizabeth, and Henry was not thrilled. But everybody was sure, for no reason at all. It was just mostly just hope. In 1534, the Acts of Supremacy were passed, establishing English monarchs as the head of the Church of England. Ah, and there it is. Which meant that Henry VIII and his successors were the supreme heads of the Church, replacing the Pope. At this point, Pope Clement was like, enough already, and he excommunicated Henry and the Archbishop. But Henry was like, whatever, now I'm the Pope, and I do what I want, and everyone has to say yes. I excommunicate myself. I excommunicate myself! <laughs> On the other side of the coin, Cardinal, Cardinal John Fisher had become one of the king's most outspoken detractors, along with Henry's former teacher and bro, Thomas More. Another Thomas. And this is over the religious stuff? Yeah. These guys are both nowadays recognized as Catholic saints. They share a feast day, which is very cute. They both refused to swear allegiance to the new Parliamentary Act of Succession, which stated that any children by Anne would be the heir's presumptive and that the king's older daughter Mary was a bastard because she was illegitimate. Right. The act also required all subjects to swear an oath to recognize this act as well as the king's supremacy, and if they refused, they would be subject to a charge of treason. So the king, they basically sent people all around the kingdom to get people, like the the biggies, the nobles, and the big clergymen to swear an oath of allegiance uh, to this act of succession. Oh, they weren't marching out into all the little farms and getting the peasants i don't think they were so worried about that (laughs) but they were trying to get you know make sure everyone was all on board because if they weren't they could be charged with treason both cardinal john fisher and thomas moore pretty much stated that like john the baptist they were ready to die on behalf of the indissolubility 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 of marriage henry was like oh bet (laughs) And had them charged with, of course, treason. Ah, what? Uh, okay. All right. Well, okay. So they've been charged with treason. What's the penalty for treason? Well, they were found guilty and sentenced to be hanged, drawn, ah. and quartered. Hmm. 
Then Henry was like, oh my God, is that too much? <laughs> so he commuted both to simple beheading. Oh, what a nice guy. Yeah, so nice. We're not going to pull you apart afterward. <laughs> Fisher and Moore were executed on Tower Hill on June 22nd and July 6th, 1535, respectively. Now, I consider these the first real official victims of Henry VIII's serial killer. These executions were based purely on the king's emotions and him feeling slighted by their refusal to go against what they felt was God's law to bow to his will. And they're really particularly murderous actions from a man with almost absolute power in England, especially Thomas More, who was his buddy and he like grew up with and was a mentor to him. But he didn't sign the thing, Carrie. Yeah. At this time, Henry and Anne had been together in one way or another for around a decade, and Henry was starting to get bored. She had wait, but they only been—they've been having sex for like a year. Okay, but you know he's sick of her. I guess I don't know. She still has a personality, Sean. Jeez. She hadn't provided the promised male child to him at this point, because to Henry, Elizabeth was just as useless as his other daughter, Mary. The whole reason he'd torn the church and his country apart was because Anne had, in one way or another, apparently said, Oh yeah, I'll pop out boys like Orville Redenbacher, man. Let's do this thing. Uh, and killed uh, an old friend. Yeah. That's part of the, part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Though they apparently did enjoy some periods of calm and affection, Henry was starting to realize that the things he liked about Anne initially were things he hated in his wife now. Yeah, she's smart and outspoken. <laughs> well, I'll quote Wikipedia for this because the wording's just too good. The vivacity and opinionated intellect that had made her so attractive as an illicit lover made her too independent for the largely ceremonial role of a royal wife, and it made her many enemies. Feel that. Mm -hmm. This uh, enemy list kind of included her own uncle, the Duke of Suffolk, who had come to resent her attitude towards her power. Apparently she was walking around like queen shit, and he wasn't having it. I really expected a reaction out of you on, I feel that. <laughs> she was once reported to have spoken to the Duke in words that shouldn't be used to a dog. That's a quote, but we don't know what the words were. <laughs> I mean, you know. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, just period. <laughs> I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> And for her part, refused to play the submissive role expected of her, one that Catherine had played to great aplomb. And Henry disliked Anne's constant irritability and violent temper, which I'm sure he was just a friggin' peach. So, oh, so Henry, does it turn out the grass was greener on the other side? How interesting. You still don't have a son. Mm -hmm. This wife talks back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He should have just made Henry Fitzroy legitimate and... I mean, Henry Fitzroy did die before Henry uh, VIII died, but still, like... What are you doing? Exactly. After a false pregnancy or miscarriage in 1534, he was pretty much over it, which tends to happen when you finally get that illicit thing that you want after years of pining for it. The brownie never tastes as good as, as you think it's going to. Mm -hmm. Henry was seeing Anne's failure to give him a son as a betrayal, and as early as Christmas time, 1534, Henry was discussing with the archbishop and the chief minister the logistics of leaving Anne without having to return to Catherine. Because he was like, ugh, God, no. Without having to mm -hmm. return to Catherine. 
It appears Anne had one chance in his eyes to do good by him, and because she couldn't control the gender of her baby any more than he could, she'd blown it. Well, and the back talk. Yeah. Hank was all powerful now, and at age 43, the clock was ticking, because people died early in those days. Didn't you hear I'm the head of the Church of England? Give, Give me a son. Henry was also getting concerned because... He had had an affair with Mary Boleyn, and sister, and apparently Affinity, that weird Catholic thing, also um, applies to banging your wife's sister before you got with your wife. So he was starting to get worried that God was pissed was and he- not giving them a son because he had had sex with Mary Boleyn. Was he, or is that actually going to turn into an excuse for finding another wife? Both. (laughs) Both. Henry undertook his first affair in 1535 with an intendant and cousin of Anne, Madge Shelton, and never really looked back. Oh, so there was a time, with each of these wives, there was a time where he wasn't screwing around? Maybe not with Catherine. I mean, there's always a first, you know. In Greater England, Henry's reforms to the church were encountering a lot of understandable resistance, and 20 to 40,000 rebels were led by English lawyer Robert Ask, together with parts of the northern nobility, in a large uprising called the Pilgrimage of Grace, which began in October 1536. Now, this is not an episode about the Protestant Reformation, but he he also made some—he was also making changes to the way that people had to worship, right? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Henry VIII promised these rebels he would pardon them and thanked them for raising their issues. But apparently this was just full-blown shade because Henry saw them as traitors and did not feel obliged to keep his promises to them. Oh. (laughs) When further violence occurred after Henry's offer of a pardon, he was like, actually, you know what? No. And the leaders, including Ask, were arrested and executed for treason. To be fair... More violence erupted after he said, I'll give you a pardon? I mean, it could have been from either side, to be honest. Could have been like a Boston massacre situation, you know? Could have been a Boston massacre situation. In total, about 200 rebels were executed, and seeing what happened to those who spoke up, the protesters decided they would rather keep their heads. Again, this is another albeit less personal, action from serial killer Henry VIII. You dare to even speak up against me? I'll lie to you, and then I'll kill you. Hundreds of you. (laughs) More cycle behavior came when Henry received the news in January 1536 that Catherine had died, and to mourn his former wife, who had loved him with her last breath, The next day, he wore not mourning black, but all yellow with a white feather in his bonnet and celebrated. What a dickhead! Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Did she die with love for Henry in her heart? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, that's sad. She went to her grave thinking she was, in God's eyes, his wife. Yeah, but did she love him? I think so. Which is just sad, you know? Yeah, it's a bummer. Anne was like, yay, love that for you. But she was pregnant at this point and very aware that this was likely her last chance to deliver what she wanted to the king. 
not least because he was barely sleeping with her anymore. So she didn't know if she'd get any other chances. She's like going to whatever old wives' tales they had back then. She's eating a bunch of like crow feet and stuff. <laughs> they say it give you, gives you a boy. Mm-hmm. Later that month, the king was unhorsed in a tournament and badly injured, and it seemed for a time he could die. Robert Baratheon style. Yeah. And he looks like Robert Baratheon at this point, right? He's, getting he's pretty in his fat. 40s now, yeah. When news of this accident reached the queen, she was sent into shock and miscarried a male child at about 15 weeks gestation, appropriately enough, on the day of Catherine's funeral, January 29th, 1536. This is not a good series of events. No. This but at least, like, his... It was his accident that more or less directly caused this. So hopefully he Oh, yeah, he seems very time. reasonable and understanding and blames things on himself in the appropriate way. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it takes a big man to accept when he's wrong. And Henry at this point is a really big, big <laughs> he, guy. He's not, after the accident is when he really blossoms. That's gouty Henry? Yeah. This personal and very symbolic loss was the real beginning of the end of this royal marriage to most who study the Tudors. Indeed, Imperial Ambassador Eustace Chapuis wrote, She is miscarried of her savior. Eustace, damn. Eustace Chapuis is now on our baby name list for a boy. Eustace Chapuis McCabe. Eustasia? Eustasia. Euthanasia. Ooh, I don't know. (laughs) We'll work on it. We'll workshop it. It's beautiful. (laughs) It's beautiful. It means peace. Piece of shit. Shortly after she recovered from this miscarriage, the dominoes began to fall. The king's new mistress and Anne's lady-in-waiting, Jane Seymour, not the Dr. Quinn medicine woman, uh, (laughs) was moved into new quarters closer to the king, and Anne's brother, George, was refused the Order of the Garter, the most senior order of knighthood in the British honors system. The worst part of a wedding to me is the Order of the Garter. I think it's (laughs) uncomfortable. We're not having one at ours. Anne must have seen the signs plain as day in front of her, and I'm sure it was really terrifying. But I don't think she could have expected what happened next, because even for all of Henry's previous machinations, it was absolutely psychopathic. Her downfall appears to have been primarily engineered by Chief Minister Thomas Cromwell, who personally disliked Anne. Henry himself issued the crucial instructions, but it was Cromwell who helped carry them out. This is the chief minister. No, I remember. There's so many Thomases. I remember this Thomas. <laughs> and we killed a Thomas earlier, so we're, yes. we're kind of taking some of them. We're taking care of it as we go. <laughs> uh, it seemed that it had been decided the best way to dispose of Anne and her allies would be to accuse her of adultery, which in this case would also be, of course, treason. In late April, a Flemish musician in Anne's service named Mark Smeaton was arrested. He initially denied being the, king, the queen's lover, but was totally tortured like there's no record like he was tortured um and he was likely promised freedom if he confessed and he eventually did and then he got his freedom which is nice because they promised and they wouldn't break a promise no courtier sir henry norris was arrested next but he couldn't be tortured as he was an aristocrat i guess that's one of the benefits of being a sir there's lots of them (laughs) land and and suffrage are other ones (laughs) Uh, Norris denied his guilt and swore that Anne was innocent. Sir Francis Weston was arrested two days later on the same charge, as was Sir William Brereton, a groom of the king's privy chamber. 
All for banging Anne? All in adultery with Anne, yeah. Sir Thomas Wyatt, a poet and friend of the Boleyns, who was allegedly, allegedly infatuated with Anne before her marriage to the king, was also imprisoned for the same charge, but later released, most likely due to his or his family's relationship with Thomas Cromwell, super conveniently for him. For he be not a fornicator, <laughs> but merely a simp. <laughs> merely a cuck. <laughs> Sir Richard Page was also accused of having a sexual relationship with the Queen, but he was acquitted of all charges after further investigation could not implicate him with Anne. Which must have been amazing, because all of the charges here were brought purely on speculation and circumstance, so there really must have been nothing. Or like he must have had a rock-solid alibi, whatever passed for a rock-solid alibi in the <laughs> Henry, I was with you that night. Shit! <laughs> The final and perhaps cruelest accusation was against Queen Anne's own brother, George Boleyn, on charges of both incest and treason. This is very much Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. Tyrells and Lannisters stuff. He was accused of two incidents of incest with Anne, November 1535 at Whitehall and the following month at Eltham. I doubt there was much in the way of proof here. Maybe he was just hanging out with his sister alone and they figured that's when they could pin it on him. Sure. If you're, well, if you're an English royal, to be fair, you go, you, you know, you see family members as potential dates. So <laughs> not usually this close. Brother and sister were more Egyptian royalty. Or the Targaryens. Well, yes, but those aren't real. So he might have just been hanging out with his sister, but that gave them enough leverage to arrest him, at least for a justice system ruled over by the very king that stood to benefit from the charges. Uh, Yeah. Mostly because of Mark Smeaton's admitting to sleeping with Anne, again, definitely due to being tortured, because none of the others that weren't able to be tortured confessed. Anne was arrested herself on May 2nd, 1536, and taken to the Tower of London. In a portion of her last letter to Henry, written a few days later, she said, Your grace's displeasure and my imprisonment are things so strange unto me, as what to write or what to excuse I am altogether ignorant. Whereas you send unto me, willing to confess a truth and so obtain your favor, by such a one, whom you know me to be my ancient professed enemy." I no sooner received this message by him, that I rightly conceived your meaning, and if, as you say, confessing a truth indeed may procure my safety, I shall with all willingness and duty perform your demand. So, basically she's saying, if it was true, I would totally tell you, but it's not, and Thomas Cromwell sucks. (coughs) She spoke of her innocence, that enemies were conspiring against her, and her love of her husband. She ended with... If I ever found favor in your sight, if ever the name Anne Boleyn hath been pleasing to your ears, then let me obtain this request, and I will so leave to trouble your grace any further, with mine earnest prayers to the Trinity to have your grace in his good keeping, and direct you in all your actions. Very smart, Anne. You're not gonna, it's not gonna save you. No. These words fell on deaf ears, or I guess blind eyes. Um, Four of the accused men were tried on May 12th, and Anne and George Boleyn were tried separately in the Tower of London for adultery, incest, and high treason. High treason because cheating on the king is cheating on the country? Yeah. 
All were, of course, found guilty and condemned to death. George and the other men were executed on May 17th on Tower Hill. And on the same day, the archbishop declared the marriage of Anne Boleyn and Henry Tudor null and void. Do we know? It's okay if you don't. Do we know what the trial system was like at all? It was a jury of your peers, but they were all dukes and earls. and. Well, so it was a jury of peers, yes, not your peers necessarily. Exactly. <laughs> Anne would be beheaded two days later after undergoing the psychological torture of seeing her scaffold being constructed through her window in the tower. In his only kindness toward Anne, Henry brought an expert French swordsman to perform the execution rather than the usual axe beheading, as sometimes those took several chops to get the do- the job done. Um, sure, you're using that same axe going from execution to execution. It doesn't always get sharpened in between. Mm-hmm. And the sword was more accurate and kinder, I guess. She... I mean, let's hope it was really sharp, but sure. <laughs> Uh, She climbed the scaffold with grace and made a short speech to the crowd. Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that, whereof I am accused and condemned to die, but I pray God save the king, for a gentler nor a more merciful prince there was never." And to me he was ever a good and a gentle and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all. And I heartily desire you all to pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me. My God, I commend my soul. Why? Why was she so nice? She had no reason to be nice. I know. With that, she knelt, was given a blindfold, and prayed, Jesu, receive my soul, or, O Lord God, have pity on my soul, over and over again. And then she was beheaded in a single stroke. That make It just makes her look super guilty to the crowd. It's like, look, she's talking about how right the king was, and the king sure, sure as shit said she cheated on him with her brother. I don't know. And then she begged forgiveness from God. And then got her head chopped off. Well, I guess she figured I must have done something wrong. Everyone who's there is like, yeah, she definitely banged her brother. In the crowd were Thomas Cromwell, Henry Fitzroy, the Lord Mayor of London, and other notables, aside from, of course, Henry VIII. Anne would be serial killer Henry's most famous victim, but would not be his last. He didn't attend the execution? No, 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 no. So let's skip forward a bit. The day after Anne's execution, Henry became engaged to Jane Seymour, which must have been super romantic. <laughs> the day after? Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. And they were already presumably having some kind of an affair. Mm-hmm. And the pair were married 10 days later. On October 12th, 1537, Jane gave birth finally to Henry's longed-for son, Prince Edward. Oh, I, can we pause and ask a question first? So. At this point, had he changed the rules so he could just, a widow could just remarry? Or are you allowed to remarry in the Catholic Church if you're widowed? At this time? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But it basically just is Wait, confirming whole... he- what Henry thought because, oh, finally I get the son when I have this, like, correct marriage. Sure. 
The birth was difficult, however, and Jane died on October 24th, having at least fulfilled her duty in Henry's eyes. All right, so his son killed this one. (laughs) Yeah. At the time, Hank recovered quickly from the one-two punch of the euphoria of receiving his son and losing his wife. Yeah, because he didn't care about one of those things. Yeah. Measures were immediately put in place to find another wife for Henry. Chief Minister Thomas Cromwell suggested yet another Anne, god damn it, the sister of the Duke of Cleves, and Cleves is like an area in Germany today. You'll like her. She's real dumb and quiet. (laughs) This was seen to be a good ally move in case of a Roman Catholic attack on England because they were more Lutheran. Hans Holbein the Younger, a painter whose images of Henry are definitely the ones you've seen, him kind of like... Yes. With his hands on his hips like, I'm Henry VIII. Over-patterned velvet, lots mm-hmm. of fur. He weighs 7,000 pounds. Yes. He's got a stupid little hat on. Yes. Um, Holbein was sent to paint a portrait of Anne of Cleves for the king, which I think is so funny. Because <laughs> it's kind of like, go take a picture of her. Bring it back. Let's see if we like her. Oh, that is, yeah. Yeah. But this is the, like, this is the version of painting a picture it's just really funny it's like seeing her tinder profile exactly henry's like i doth swipe right (laughs) on this portrait there is speculation that holbein painted anne in an overly flattering light but scholarly opinion nowadays is that the painting was indeed accurate because he remained in the king's employ after everything was said and done Uh um why because the painting is pretty why did they think that because the painting's just She's real real hot in the painting? No. God, no. After Henry saw the portrait, he was like, oh, very nice. And he agreed to marry Anne. I like you. <laughs> but when he saw her, he was like, ugh. Really? Yeah. And he was like, I like her not. Or this something is like that. awkward. He said the, if that's like a direct quote. It basically like, she's ugly. But like, I don't think she really was. I think that was just kind of an excuse. And he got bored really quickly and wanted to annul this marriage to marry another. How quick? Very quick. Anne didn't argue and agreed with him that the marriage had never been consummated, which, by the way, at this point was likely because the older king with his burgeoning health issues was beginning to experience the very royal malady of erectile dysfunction. Oh, I thought you were going to say gout. Also that. Because that's very, that's the disease of kings. (laughs) I didn't realize erectile dysfunction was also the disease of kings. I don't know. It seems like a very limp job to have. Anne got off probably better than any of the king's wives till his death, as she received the title of the king's sister, two houses, and a generous allowance. She received title of the title of king's sister? Yeah, it's it's kind of like dowager or something like that. Basically you're you're treated with the same respect as his sister would be, which uh, is pretty nice. That's my sister. We used to date. <laughs> and his, it's royalty. Though she had to live in England for the rest of her life, the king apparently treated her with kindness and affection, and from a madman like Henry, that was better even than the best that could have been expected. <laughs> now, what's that rhyme about Henry's wives? Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Well, it looks like we're on the second beheaded wife and the second most notable victim of his killing spree. Ah! Henry had probably become bored with Anne of Cleves because he was already obsessed with... 
Anne Boleyn's cousin. Oh, he can't get enough of these Boleyns. He's dipping back into the Boleyn can. Yeah, but they're all related, so, you know. No, I know, but, like, it was Mary and Anne and this one, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mary Anne Jane Seymour was a cousin, I think. And then this one, 17-year-old Catherine Howard. Oh, no, it's another Catherine. Um, And calling her Howard would be weird. Let's call her Cat. Because she's a goddamn teenager. <laughs> and it seems like that's something she would have gone by. Sure. And what's the age difference here? 32 years. Nice. <laughs> this is good. A May-December romance. And now, oh, this gross. it was like February-December. <laughs> now, Chief Minister Thomas Cromwell wasn't a fan of Cat, and Henry had become disillusioned with his former bro after Cromwell had... Cromwell. Yeah, this is what Henry was calling him at this point. Cromwell had facilitated the dud marriage to Anne of Cleves. Did Crom? Did Cromwell have the hots for Henry? Do we think he was just trying I don't to know. trying to make Henry tired of women so he could finally get in there? <laughs> well, wildly, it seems that the king's blaming of Cromwell for his lame marriage to Anne of Cleves is what pushed him to have Cromwell arraigned for treason and heresy. On July 28th, 1540. What were the stated crimes? Uh, treason and hair. I mean... But that was the event? That was part of it, yeah. He painted this this woman too hot. Like, why did you, why did you recommend you her? her so she hot? sucks. But, like, thank... I mean, thank God for Anne of Cleves that he didn't just murder her. She was too ugly to murder. I don't <laughs> even want to look at her when her head comes off. <laughs> to me, this is... One of the most egregious murders by Henry. I mean, how is it Cromwell's fault that you can't get it up with your wife? Basically? It's not. It's obviously not. So treason. So he said a bad matchmaker. Yeah. Treason. Beheading? Well, it seems um, Henry's shame was so all-consuming that he felt it most constructive to blame someone else. Because how could the literal god on earth have a limp pee-pee? How, Sean? Certainly not the head of the English church. Just 19 days after the annulment of his marriage with Anne of Cleves, Henry wed Cat on July 28th, 1540. So that was the same day he had Thomas Cromwell executed. He loves pairing He's such a executions and marriages. Well, it's efficient. That's what it is. You've already got, everybody's already wearing their nice clothes. Henry was 49 years old. 32 year old, years older than his new wife, who was 17. Cat mm-hmm. wasn't new to the ways of love, and though her royal husband didn't know it, she had engaged in some kind of sexual relationship with her music teacher, Henry. <sighs> Another Henry? Henry Mannix, a few years earlier. We'll just call him Mannix. Isn't it, that like a cop show from the 70s? Oh, that's Magnum. No, is that Magnum? Well, Magnum PI is a show, but I, I thought Mannix. there's, I thought there's something. Yeah, there's something like that. It's like in the vein of a Columbo, like it's a detective <laughs> show. Mannix. Matlock. There it is. No, Mannix. Oh, I think you're thinking of Matlock, though. I, mm, keep going. I'm going to find <laughs> Mannix. It's speculated today that Mannix and Kat's relationship was likely a case of grooming. Because despite the fact that he wasn't much older than her, he was in a position of power over her and kept pressuring her to lose her virginity to him. This gross guy. The teacher? Yeah. Hmm. Manic- Why are you telling me this? Well, Mannix and Kat both later 
stated that they had engaged in sexual contact, but not actual coitus. Whatever that means. Um, Kat came to the royal court as a member of the household of Anne of Cleves, but quickly caught Henry's eye. And I'm telling you about Mannix because it comes up again. Mannix, by the way, is a... um... 1967 TV drama that ran for eight seasons about a detective. There you go. I think he was banging Henry VIII's future (laughs) wife. (laughs) From the beginning, the marriage between Kat and Henry was not a happy one. Henry was in constant agony from his now ulcerous leg. Oh, yeah, we haven't mentioned this yet. Um, Since his injury way back during his marriage to Anne Boleyn. The hunting injury or jousting injury. Jousting, yeah. He had been unable to undertake his usual exercises like horse riding, anything physical. And so he had become very obese. Telling that Henry's favorite exercise was sitting on another (laughs) animal. He suffered a leg wound during the accident. And since then, it had become a chronic wound, festering and reopening whenever. Whenever? In and out, yep. Was this a year of the fistula situation where everybody thought it was very fashionable to have open sores on their leg? No, because apparently it was so bad that his leg stunk and bandages wrapped around it had to be replaced multiple times a day as they would get soaked through with pus. Pus, not blood. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, that must have been great. Yeah. But Henry thought of... And he's settling into newlywed life. Yeah. Henry thought of himself as the ultimate prize despite this, because, hello, he's the king of England. He's the head of the church of England. He's basically God. (laughs) However, this constant pain made him, well, a pain to be around. And for a pretty young 17-year-old, being saddled with an old, fat, stinking, and literally rotting husband was not exactly pleasant. I would call it not ideal. (laughs) What sealed her fate was her involvement with Henry's favorite male courtier, Thomas Culpepper. Oh, shit. Another Thomas. Another Thomas C. This preschool class would have been a nightmare to keep track of for any teacher. All right, Thomas. Thomas, stop it. Thomas, (laughs) you sit down. No, Thomas, you stand up. No, Thomas C. No, the other Thomas C. No, the other Thomas C. I give up. I'm chopping (laughs) all your heads off. Culpepper was young and cool, and Kat had even considered marrying him before Henry had scooped her up. Once she started regretting her marriage to the king, she may have found her way back to Culpepper, allegedly beginning to meet with him secretly in spring 1541. Allegedly? Or do we have that mostly from Henry and whoever accused her? There's a lot of allegedly, but I think, I think this one really did happen. Interestingly, their meetings were allegedly arranged by one of Catherine's, one of Kat's older ladies-in-waiting, Jane Boleyn, Viscountess Rochefort. Jesus Christ, not another one. The widow of Kat's cousin, George Boleyn, Anne Boleyn's brother. Who Henry executed. Yeah, so you'd think she would have known better because her own husband and sister-in-law had been killed. Oh, I was going to say, you'd think Henry would just purge this whole family from the court at a certain Seriously. point. And also, Kat had employed Francis Derham, who had previously been informally engaged to her and had an affair with her prior to her marriage, as her own secretary. Oh, honey. So he was right there. Oh, honey, this... She was 17. She's not smart. I know, but there's just so much drama in this so uh, much drama. story. Spilling the tea. Well, a lot of tea was getting spilled. People began to talk. It is England, I guess. Yeah. And her earlier conduct with Mannix also came out into the open. 
The archbishop figured that to eliminate Kat would only be good for him, since her family, um, which were still basically Roman Catholics, could start to affect his own power, which was more based in the Church of England. And he, so he didn't like Kat having any influence over the king at this point. And is this before season two when Mannix sets out on his own and starts his own detective agency? <laughs> Stupid. He had the Viscountess interrogated, and fearing torture, she told investigators that she had watched for Cat in the back stairs as Culpepper made his escapes from her bedchambers. Escapes! Like he's sprinting down the hall. She's basically the lookout. Damningly, and this is why I think this was a real relationship, investigators also found a love letter written in Queen Cat's distinctive handwriting in Culpepper's chambers. On November 1st, 1541, the king arranged to be found praying in the Chapel Royal, which is such a psycho move. Arranged to be found mm-hmm. praying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There he received a letter describing the allegations against Cat, who was questioned on the 7th by a delegation of counselors and found to be frantic, incoherent, and pitiable, possibly even suicidal, once they told her what was going on. Right. Well, you... This is a really stupid decision. Yeah. He's already murdered a wife. Again, she's 17. Like He murdered a wife for cheating on him. Yeah. And she didn't even do that. Kat probably did. Yeah. Kat was stripped of her title as queen on November 23rd, though her marriage to Henry was never formally annulled. Uh, perhaps at this point he figured, the hell with it. I'm just going to kill her anyway. I don't want to deal with the paperwork. I'll just widow myself. <laughs> Fine, I'll do it myself. Culpepper and Francis Derham were arraigned at Guildhall on December 1st for high treason. And on December 10th, Culpepper was beheaded and Derham was hanged, drawn, and quartered, their heads being placed on spikes on London Bridge. I think it's nice that they hang them first before they (laughs) tie horses to their limbs and slap the horses on the ass. Yeah. The Royal Assent by Commission Act of 1541 made it treason and punishable by death for a queen consort to fail to disclose her sexual history to the king within 20 days of their marriage, or to incite someone to co- commit adultery with her. So, so this is this law is in place because of Catherine Howard. Right, of course. Um, so Henry drafts that up right away. Mm-hmm. This measure made Cat unequivocally guilty of having slept with someone before marriage and committing adultery afterward. And a formal trial was not even bothered to be held. Wait, so he made up a law that she'd already violated? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's not how laws work. You're in Henry's court, bitch. When the lords of the council came for her, she allegedly panicked and screamed as they manhandled her into the barge that would escort her to the tower on February 10th. Her flotilla passed under London Bridge, where the heads of Culpepper and Derham were impaled, and where they remained until 1546. This is like such a psychotic thing to do. It's like a serial killer showing his victim the bodies of those he's killed before, saying... There's no hope for you. Look what happened to them. You're next. It's so sick. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Mm -hmm. She was beheaded by axe. No nice sharp sword for cat. February 13th, 1542. Henry might have felt the slightest twinge of guilt because he was really railroading Anne Boleyn. Yeah, maybe. That might be where the sword came from. And if this this girl actually cheated on him, then I, I I don't think he cared at all. Yeah. 
She died with relative composure but looked pale and terrified, requiring assistance to climb the scaffold. Viscountess Rushford was executed immediately thereafter on Tower Green, yet another Boleyn murdered by Henry's wrath. After this, Henry's passion for murder may have waned until his death. He married wealthy widow Catherine Parr. Oh, God, another Catherine. He likes the name. We'll call her Parr in July 1543. Thankfully, Parr helped Henry reconcile his relationship with daughters Mary and Elizabeth. And with 1543's Third Succession Act, they were put back in the line of succession after Edward. So they were legitimized? Yeah, basically. After Edward, of course. Meaning those marriages actually were actually marriages after all? I don't even know. I don't even know. Henry wasn't around for long for this marriage, though. He died at age 55, hastened by his plethora of health problems, on January 28, 1547. He was buried next to Jane Seymour, who he recognized as his true wife even through death because she, unlike all the others, had provided him with the thing he most wanted and to him that made her the most real. You know, like a narcissist. I was going to say, you know, the way marriage works. (laughs) So why are we talking about Henry VIII today on this here podcast? Well, I've been thinking about that the whole time we've been um, going, Caroline, and I I think this is right in keeping with our our area of... I do, too. That's why I'm bringing it to the table. ...of podcasting. Um, The first thing is obviously it involved a lot of murders, and it also involved some gross stuff, and those are both in our, you know, seeping leg wounds is definitely right, right in our wheelhouse. It sure is scary. But more to me... This is a podcast where we like talking about things that scare us, right? Scary things. Mm -hmm. There's nothing scarier than an all-powerful monarch who can make up laws that just mean that you die and no one else will say anything about it because they're too afraid. Yeah. That's a real true horror that, say, that last dumb, dumb little girl um, had to experience before she had her little head chopped off. Mm -hmm. They weren't even pretending to really go through legality on that one. They They didn't even have the law afterward and didn't have a trial. Didn't have a trial. Um, Yeah, Henry didn't have the numbers, the sheer numbers of a a Pol Pot or a Genghis Khan, as we've said. He's not Alexander killed millions of people. Mm -hmm. He's not like extraordinary in that way, but in Henry specifically, I see the marks of like a serial killer. And also a warning. Those given absolute power will be able to use those powers for whatever they want. And sometimes what they want is a fresh wife to give them kids or for people to just shut up already about the Pope. If madmen receive power, they can use it for whatever aims serve them, even those deeply personal and driven by emotion, having nothing to do with the good of the country. Henry VIII and his attitude toward his wives, kinsmen, and whoever he perceived to stand in his way are, like you said, kind of like a warning to us all. Not everyone is fit to hold power, and many will use it selfishly and horribly. Well, that's why... And that's kind of an apt thing for modern day. Yeah, I can think of a few things over the last couple of years that would make me uh, think that. Yeah, but... uh... It's why monarchy's pretty bad, or at least it's really hit or miss, because mm-hmm. you get that genetic lottery, and 
if if a crazy happens to be on the throne. Mm-hmm. Which will certainly happen uh, if you're all inbred. And there's no way to do that. In, and occasionally there are, we're good kings, right? And they actually mm-hmm. like take their countries in, go, in good directions and, and probably much more so than a Senate could because there's nobody disagreeing with them. They can just make all the good reforms but they again, want. But again, there's when it nobody disagreeing. Happen, yeah. When it doesn't, but it's like George Lucas when nobody disagrees <laughs> with you. Henry VIII is just like George Lucas. And you end up with the uh, uh, Attack of the Clones because no one said no to George one time. Yeah, I think the thing about this story and of framing Henry VIII as a serial killer instead of just this fat asshole who killed his wives hardy har and ate turkey legs um is because it is frightening and in terms of anyone having power we have to recognize the signs of someone doing these things like a Dahmer or a gacy um before a bunch of figurative bodies are found in their figurative homes and it's too late to do anything about it I will say there's also some of these murders were a product of just dictatorial government. Like for sure, if people are rebelling and you're a king in the 1500s, you that's, have to kill yeah, like a couple hundred. That's of them. the the most like more just kingly um, rather than anything else. But the thing about that that really hit me was like the the promise, promise and then the just you know what screw you. Yeah, it is. It is more assholey than he yeah. needed to be, but most kings probably would have killed a bunch of those people. But in the cases of um, Thomas More, John Fisher, Anne Boleyn and her brother and all of those men, Thomas Cromwell, Catherine Howard, these are all people that just stood in the way of what Henry wanted or even refused to bow to him the way that he wanted them to. And that got their heads chopped off. Because he was, by the time he killed Anne Boleyn, he had already cast off the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. He could have just said, guess what? This marriage is annulled. Yeah, he could have just said the I slept with your sister thing, this marriage isn't valid. Well, that would be his fault. He could just say, this marriage isn't valid because I say so, because I'm the head of the Church yeah. of England. No, true. And he didn't. He chose. He chose to kill her and five other people along with her. Yeah. And that's the mark of a serial killer. And there you have it, folks. Henry, portrait of a serial killer. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I hope it, you took some lessons, uh, not only about history, but just just like how to treat your wives. <laughs> how not to treat your wives. Yeah, no, that's what I mean, for sure. <laughs> you get working on that son, though. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Do you have what it takes to go into the mind of a serial killer? Or solve a horrific case? 
<laughs> Hi, everybody. When you join Hunt a Killer, you receive a box full of cryptic clues mailed to you each month to test your detective skills and challenge even the most brilliant minds in a game designed to give you a journey into the mind of a killer so you can escape with the answers you need. And I hope you do escape. Input our code SCARYSQUAD20 for 20% off when you sign up for your first subscription box at huntakiller.com and find out if you have the guts to hunt a killer. The guts! That's the code SCARYSQUAD20, S-C-A-R-Y-S-Q-U-A-D-2-0 for 20% off at huntakiller.com, www.huntakiller.com. Hunt a killer! Join the hunt today. Let's head to the Bizarre Bazaar. It's been a while since we've been here. Is that a new stall over there? I think there's some new vendors in the in the bazaar. <laughs> Centuries after the infamous Salem witch trials of 1692 and 93, a condemned victim of the hysteria may receive a long overdue pardon, thanks to the work of a Massachusetts middle school class. Yet this is... I don't know how to feel about this. Give me the deets, Carrie. Well, personally, I just love this story. Elizabeth Johnson Jr. was convicted of witchcraft and sentenced to death during the trials in 1693, but escaped the noose when Governor William Phipps put an end to the trials and threw out the outstanding convictions. However, due to a quirk of, I guess, record-keeping, Johnson's conviction has basically remained on the books ever since. In 1957, Massachusetts lawmakers passed a bill that exonerated numerous victims condemned during the witch trials, but her name just didn't make it to the list, and apparently also slipped through the cracks when another similar bit of legislation was enacted in 2001. Her case remained in limbo until 2020, when a 8th grade civics class in North Andover, Massachusetts, took up her case. Good for them. I've changed my mind completely on this story now that I have all the details. Spearheaded by teacher Carrie LaPierre. Love another badass Carrie. Big ups to you. Another badass LaPierre, who's a teacher. (laughs) Big ups to our friend Nikki. Yeah. Uh, Students researched Johnson's story and set about learning how an official pardon could be obtained for Johnson. Now State Senator Diana DiZolio is on the case and working with the class to put forward a new piece of legislation that will finally exonerate Johnson. Should the bill pass, she would be the last remaining witch to convicted during the trials to have their name officially cleared. DiZolio told The Guardian, quote, Why Elizabeth was not exonerated is unclear, but no action was ever taken on her behalf by the state general assembly or the courts. Possibly because she was neither a wife nor a mother, she was not considered worthy of having her name cleared. And because she never had children, there is no group of descendants acting on her behalf. The bill would amend the 1957 legislation to include Johnson on the official pardons list of those wrongly accused and convicted of witchcraft. 
Oh, good for her. See, I, the context I was missing was that the rest of them were already pardoned back in the fifties, mm-hmm. uh, and I was like, "Why would you give one of them a pardon? They should all—they—they yeah. they didn't do a crime." Yeah, she's the last one, so hopefully this goes through. No such thing as witches. Uh, that kind of witches. Yup. Never were. Ain't never been a thing, Chicken Wang. I love my witchy wife, though. Love you. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will be forever grateful. And tell someone about us. Grab their phone out of their hand. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't ask permission. Just do it. Other than that, at all times, ask for consent. Yes, Special please. thanks to our beloved patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, and our newest patron, Christy Atchison. Oh, we met Christy at um, Paracom. We sure did. Thank you so much, Christy. Thank you for joining us. How exciting. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan, and as always, go and check Kyle out. At Music is a Verb on YouTube, he talks about pop music with grace and intelligence. This has been a production of Longboy Media. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.